Take your copy of God's Word and open it with me to the Gospel of John. We're getting back to our series through the book of John, picking up where we left off three weeks ago. We're in John chapter 7, and we're going to begin in a moment in verse 14. John 7, verses 14 through 24. Seven years ago, in 2016, there was a ministry based out of Tennessee that did a survey, and they asked 2,000 college students in America the following question. If you could ask God one question and know that He would answer it, what question would you ask? Boy, that's something to think about, isn't it? If you could ask God just one question and know that He would answer it, what question would you ask? Many of those who responded replied and said, why is there so much suffering in the world? We hear that one a lot, don't we? There was one person who replied to that survey and asked, why did my dad walk out and leave us with nothing? Someone else asked the question, did all my heartbreak as a child have a purpose? There were a few people who asked, how could you love someone and send them to hell? Many people asked this following question, how can I know for sure how to get to heaven? Now, I think we would agree that these are, by and large, good questions and that the Bible has something to say to each and every one of them. But I want to ask you this. What if God turned that around? What if God were to do the same with us? What if God asked us some questions and we had to give honest answers? Well, that's exactly what we see happening in our scripture this morning. If you were with us a few weeks ago, you know that the context of this scripture is what is called the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, this was one of the three big ones, one of the three main Jewish feasts, and it was considered really the most joyful time of the Jewish calendar. Now, Jesus' brothers, we are told, went to this feast. They did not yet believe in him, but they encouraged Jesus. They tried to persuade Jesus to go up to this feast with them. Jesus did not do so because he knew exactly how that would turn out. He knew that they would all announce his arrival before he got there. It would be like Palm Sunday, but six months too soon. It was not yet time for Jesus to die on the cross. He still had another six months of ministry, another six months of, of preaching and, and healing and so much more. And so Jesus did not go with them, but the Bible says he went separately by himself incognito. And for the first half of the week, Jesus is simply walking around Jerusalem. No one seems to recognize him. And meanwhile, Jesus is just listening in on the conversations as everybody is whispering their opinions about him. 
And some people said, well, I think uh, he was, you know, a good man. And then there are some people who said, oh, no, I think he was a deceiver. And meanwhile, Jesus is walking around and he's listening to it all, soaking it all in. And then halfway through this week-long festival, Jesus does something incredible. Halfway through the week, he goes to the temple and he begins to teach. And in this teaching He forced them and He forces us to confront some of the most important questions in all of life. Now, Jesus does not ask these questions explicitly. He guided them. He led them to these questions. And by the way, that's how the best teachers do it, right? But these questions that we're going to see and we're going to face in our text are questions that are worthy of our time and attention. These are some questions that really have eternal ramifications. These are questions in which how you answer them, how you respond to them, will shape how you live your life and even where you spend eternity. And so this morning, I want to take this text and and look at it through the light of four questions, and I want to put each of them in the first person because my hope is that we will make them personal and that we will hear these questions ringing in our hearts as we go through this next week. But four questions that we need to deal with, that we need to all ask ourselves, and the first question is this, by what authority do I live my life? By what authority do I live my life. Look at verse 14. Now about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and taught. Did you know until now, Jesus cleansed the temple and then he healed in the temple, but this is the first time for Jesus to actually teach in the temple. Now what did Jesus teach them? Maybe he taught them the meaning of the Feast of Tabernacles they were celebrating. Maybe, like he had done at other places, he taught them about the kingdom of God. But all we can do is guess because John actually does not tell us. He does not tell us because his point is not the context of Jesus' teaching, but how the people responded to his teaching. And how did they respond? Look at verse 15. And the Jews marveled, saying, How does this man know letters having never studied? They marveled. They were amazed. They said, how does he know letters? What do they mean by that? That Greek word letters is the word that means documents. The word that means writings or manuscripts. In this case, we're talking about the manuscripts, the text of the scriptures, the Old Testament, their Hebrew Bible. And so when Jesus taught them whatever he taught them that day, whatever it was, we know that he taught them on the basis of the text of scripture. That was his authority. And by the way, if Jesus, when he taught, cited the text of God's Word, then who are we and who am I to think that I have some kind of idea or opinion that is better than what we already have in this book? 
But I want to go back to this question. How does Jesus know the letters, the documents of Scripture, having never studied? In other words, they're looking down on Jesus. They're saying, who does he think he is? He didn't graduate from one of our seminaries. He doesn't have one of our degrees by his name. He doesn't hold one of our diplomas. They thought if Jesus did not graduate from one of our schools, from one of our yeshivas, then his teaching is not valid. Now, let me tell you, I value education. I went to college. I went to seminary. Got my master's. Got a doctorate. That plus five dollars will buy you a coffee at Starbucks. And you need to be careful because there are a lot of people who will play this little game that they're trying to play with Jesus. In John chapter 7, we see this all the time. Someone will make an argument. And let's just say it is a good argument. Then someone else comes along. And rather than actually deal with the argument, they just attack the credentials of the person making it. That is exactly what we have here. You heard the old saying, if you can't knock the truth, you knock the truth teller. Well, here's Jesus' response to that in verse 16. Jesus answered them and said, my doctrine is not mine, but his who sent me. Now, little parenthesis, something I want you to notice about this verse. Most of the time, when the Bible talks about False doctrines, that word doctrine is in the plural, doctrines, because there are so many of them. But almost always in the New Testament, when the Bible talks about good doctrine, sound doctrine, it's not plural, it is singular, not doctrines, but doctrine, because it's all one whole teaching from God. Because what we have here is one gospel story from Genesis to Revelation that centers around and is based upon Jesus. And notice Jesus said, my doctrine is not mine. Now, as the Son of God, everything that He spoke was true. But Jesus wants them to understand that He was not making things up as He went along. He wants them to understand he's not teaching them anything that is independent or contrary to what God had already said in his word. And he wanted them to understand that God was his authority. Now, they had heard the other rabbis teach, and in those days, rabbis would uh, quote rabbis who had quoted other rabbis before them, who had quoted other rabbis before them, and it just kept going and going and going. Jesus came to them and he cited God as his authority and he used scripture to prove it. Now, whether or not a person realizes this, everyone is going to live their lives based on some authority. Jesus stated what his authority was as he taught them in the temple that day. But everyone is going to live by some kind of authority. In other words, by what authority do you decide what is right and wrong? 
By what authority do you say what is true and what is error? By what authority do you say that something is good or evil? Everyone is going to have some kind of authority for making that determination. And ultimately, you only have two to choose from. You can either live by man's authority or by God's authority. Proverbs 14, 12 says, There's a way that seems right to man, but the end of it is the way of death. That's what you get when you live by man's authority or any authority but God's. You get death. You get chaos. You get destruction, whether it's a person or whether it's a society. But everyone here has to ask the question, by what authority do I live my life? On what authority do I base my beliefs? Now that leads to another question that we need to ask ourselves that we see based on this text. Am I willing to do God's will? Am I really willing to do God's will? Look at verse 17. If anyone wills to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine whether it is from God or whether I speak on my own authority. Now, I love the way the New American Standard translates this. If anyone is willing to do his will. If anyone is willing to do his will, God's will. Jesus said that is how they will know whether or not his words are true. That's how they'll know whether his doctrine is really from God. Now, the flip side of this is also true. If a person is not willing to do God's will, they will not know whether his teachings are true, whether his doctrine is from God, because there's no reason for God to reveal truth to somebody if they've already decided that they're not going to follow what he says. So the question becomes, are you willing? Are you really willing to do God's will? A, a lot of people will say, oh sure, of course, I want to do God's will. But first, if you could just show me what it is, let me take a look and then I'll give my final answer. Ladies and gentlemen, it doesn't work that way. I love the way Donald Barnhouse said it. He said, 95% of knowing the will of God is being willing to do it before you know what it is. Oh, that is so, so true. G. Campbell Morgan said it this way. He said, when men are wholly and completely consecrated to the will of God and want to do that above everything else, then they find out that Christ's teaching is divine that it is the teaching of God. You know, on a number of occasions over the years, I've shared the gospel with someone, and as I'm sharing Christ, they'll give me all of their reasons for not believing in God, or not believing in Christ, or not believing in the gospel. And every now and then in this conversation, I will, I will ask the question, and I will ask someone, okay, for the sake of argument, if God is real, and if His Word is true, would you be willing to yield to Him? Would you be willing to surrender to Him? 
Would you be willing to say, you're God, I'm not, you're the creator, you know better than I do, so I'm going to just lay aside every opinion and idea I have that is contrary to your word. Would you be willing to do that? And almost without exception, the answer is no. Because the real issue is they don't want a divine boss telling them what to do or what to think about anything. And ladies and gentlemen, that is the problem. Jesus said, if you really want to know him, if you really want to know whether his teaching is true, you must settle this issue. You must answer this question. Are you willing? Am I really willing to do God's will? Because if you are, Jesus promised in verse 16 that you will know whether it's true. Now here's another question that we need to ask ourselves. And this is so relevant. Whose glory am I seeking? We would all do well to ask ourselves that question. Whose glory am I seeking? Look at verse 18. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory. But he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true, and no unrighteousness is in him. Now we're going to come back to that last statement in a moment. But Jesus said that the person who speaks from himself, meaning the person who teaches or preaches, and they're speaking their own ideas instead of the Word of God, Jesus said that person, quote, seeks his own glory. The reason why they're teaching what is not God's Word is because ultimately they want glory for themselves. As you probably already know, there are a lot of people out there who claim to speak for God but they really are seeking their own glory. They want to be known. They want to be famous. They want the applause. According to Jesus, that was true then, and that is still true today. On the other hand, the person who is merely teaching and preaching what God says they're not going to care whether or not they get any glory. You understand, back in those days, no one would have ever thought about praising a herald for simply repeating a message that originated with the king. He's just the messenger. Why would he get any glory? And in the same way, if someone is teaching and preaching the Word of God, if what I am giving to you week after week is the Word of God, why in the world would I get any credit? Newsflash, I did not write this book. God did give Him the glory. I'm reminded of a, a famous Italian conductor named Arturo Toscanini, and in the first half of the 20th century, he was considered one of the greatest, if not 
the greatest band director in the world. Of course, today my wife is the greatest band director in the world, but in the the first half of the 20th century, everyone said that Arturo Toscanini is perhaps the greatest band director in the world, and uh, all over the world, uh, symphony orchestras would invite him to come and conduct, and some of the best players in the world wanted to play for him. Well, in 1939, He came to the United States, and he was on tour, and there was one particular concert in which they performed uh, one of his favorite symphonies by Beethoven, and after the concert was over, the people were so caught up in the music, and they were so amazed, he received a five-minute standing ovation. And finally, when the applause and when the cheers died down, Arturo Toscanini spoke to a quiet concert hall, and he said to them, I am nothing. And then he turned around and faced the musicians on stage behind him, and he said, You are nothing. And then he said, But Beethoven... Beethoven is everything. Well, I think we understand his point. And I think we can take his attitude towards Beethoven and apply that same attitude towards God. Because 2,000 years ago, Jesus came from heaven to earth. And isn't it amazing? The one who was worthy and is worthy of all of the glory He emptied Himself. He made Himself as nothing. Jesus said that He did not come seeking His own glory, but the glory of the One who sent Him, the glory of His Father in heaven. And listen, it is because Jesus did not seek the glory for Himself. That is why the Bible says in Philippians chapter 2, God has exalted him and given him the name that is above every name. It's because Jesus did not seek glory for himself that we turn to Revelation chapter 4 and there are all the angels and there are all the elders around the throne and they're praising him and saying, you are worthy to receive glory. That's how it works Listen, if you seek glory for yourself, if you live for your own glory, you will miss it. But if you live to give God the glory, He will exalt you. So we go back to that question. Whose glory am I seeking? Because if you only care about seeking your own glory, You're not going to know God or be used by God in any way. One final question that we see in this passage that we would all do well to ask ourselves this morning, and that is, what would happen if God judged me justly? What would really happen if God judged me justly? Look at verse 19. Did not Moses give you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? Now, notice that statement. Did Jesus say, 
few of you keep the law? Is that what he said? No. Did he say in verse 19, only some of you keep the law? Is that what he said? No. He said, none of you keeps the law. That was true about them. That's true about us. We are lawbreakers. All have sinned, the Bible says, and fall short of the glory of God. So Jesus makes this accusation. He points out to them that, that none of them keep the law. And then he proves it by asking this other question, why do you seek to kill me? I want you to think about this. These were people who prided themselves and how well they knew the law and how much they loved the law. And they were always talking about the law. It was all about the law, the law, the law. And Jesus said to them, right now you are in the process of breaking one of those laws. The sixth commandment, thou shalt not kill because you're plotting to kill me. And six months later, yes, they crucified him. But do you remember what happened the last time Jesus was in Jerusalem? When we were in John chapter 5, Jesus came to Jerusalem. He came to the temple. There was a pool, the pool of Bethesda. And there you had all of the sick and the lame. And the Bible says that there was one man who had been there. He had been lame for 38 years. Jesus asked him, do you want to be well? And he said, well, you know, they, they had this belief that the water begins to stir and whoever's the first one in the water gets healed, but I'm lame. I'm never the first one in the water. There's no hope for me. Jesus spoke to him. He said, arise, take up your bed and walk. That's all he did. He merely spoke it. And all of a sudden, strength returned to his legs and he stood up for the first time in almost four decades picked up his bed and he began to, to walk just like Jesus told him to. Oh, this was wonderful. Jesus performed a great miracle and everybody knew it. So how did they respond? Chapter 5, verse 16 says this. For this reason, the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him. Why? Because he had done these things on the Sabbath. Jesus just performed a great miracle. This is their response. They should have been celebrating. They should have been rejoicing because, you know what? Every day is a good day to show mercy, right? Every day is a good day to help someone in need. But they were angry because Jesus merely spoke and healed this man on the Sabbath. And it turns out, the same people who were angry at Jesus and wanted to kill him in chapter 5 were still angry with Jesus, and they were still trying to kill him in chapter 7. Look at verse 20. The people answered and said, You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Now, some of the people asked that question, they were flat out lying because they knew exactly what was going on. Some of those people asking that question, maybe they just were not aware that there was this plot underway to kill Jesus. But I want you to notice, this is one of five times in the Gospels 
that the people said that Jesus was demon-possessed. Five times this happened. I mean, here's the only guy who never had an evil thought, the only guy who walked this earth who never committed a single evil deed, and what did they say about him? They called him demon-possessed. Now, by the way, remember that the next time this world calls you names. Remember that this world will never call you anything worse than what this world called Jesus. They just insulted Jesus, so... What does he do? Does he insult them back? No. They just called him a name. Does he return the favor? No. Here's his response in verse 21. Jesus answered and said to them, I did one work, and you all marvel. Moses, therefore, gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses should not be broken, are you angry with me because I made a man completely well on the Sabbath? Oh, Jesus is making an absolutely brilliant argument. They were mad at him because he healed on the Sabbath. So what does Jesus do? He pointed out that they circumcised on the Sabbath. You know, centuries before, God had told Abraham that he was to be circumcised, and every male in his household was to be circumcised. He told them to do that. That that would be a sign of the covenant that God had made with them, that they were to be different from the pagan world around them. And from that day forward, God said, every uh, newborn male child will be circumcised on the eighth day. Moses came along and he officially recorded that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Leviticus chapter 12. But Jesus points out something. He points out to them that they could never control on what day a person was born. They had no control over that. Now, these days, of course, sometimes we do. Uh, there are some folks who maybe uh, uh, the baby is late in arriving and they will induce labor and they'll pick a date, but uh, they didn't have that ability. Jesus said, you, know, you have no power over what day a person is born. And you know what? One out of every seven kids would be born the day before the Sabbath, which means the eighth day, if you did the math, fell on the Sabbath day. And so what did they do? When there was a Jewish male, newborn child, and the eighth day fell on the Sabbath day, Jesus said, I'll tell you what you do. You circumcise them anyway, even though it's the Sabbath. These were the people who had all these rules that they had added about the Sabbath. They literally counted how many steps they walked on the Sabbath day because if they took too many steps, that would be breaking the Sabbath. They literally had rules about what kinds of knots you were allowed to tie and what kind of knots you were not allowed to tie on the Sabbath because if you tied the wrong kind of knot, that would be breaking the Sabbath. They had all these silly rules about the Sabbath, but then Jesus said, you don't think twice about circumcising on the Sabbath day. Please don't misunderstand what Jesus is saying here. He was not saying that it was a sin to circumcise on the Sabbath. He's simply pointing out 
that by their own standard, by the standard that they were using to judge Him, they themselves were guilty. That is His point. He says to them, you're mad at Me for healing on the Sabbath, but you injure on the Sabbath. And if it's okay for you to inflict pain on the Sabbath, is it not okay for me to alleviate pain on the Sabbath? Now, all of this is leading to this key statement in verse 24. Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. They were so busy judging Jesus based on appearances, just like so many of us, so busy judging themselves, judging others, based on what things look like on the outside. But let me tell you something. God sees what's on the inside. God sees what's behind the mask. God sees what's in the heart. So Jesus said, oh, don't judge according to appearances. Judge with righteous judgment. What does he mean by that? To judge based on what the Word of God actually says about us. To accept God's verdict. What His Word says to be true about you and about me. And so what happens when we allow that to happen? What happens when we allow God's Word to measure us? Here's what we do, and I want you to look back at those four questions one more time. When we really allow ourselves to be measured according to God's Word, according to God's standards, here's what we find. We've all rejected God's authority over our lives at some point. That's what we've done. We have not been willing to do God's will. We've chosen our will instead. We have sought our own glory instead of God's. And therefore, if God were to judge me justly apart from Christ, the verdict would be guilty. Now that's the bad news. The good news is, that's why Jesus came. That's why Jesus came. Jesus came 2,000 years ago from heaven to earth, and He placed Himself under His Father's authority, was always willing on every occasion to do the Father's will, He came, and though He was worthy of glory, He sought no glory for Himself. And verse 18, He said, there is no unrighteousness in Him. He was innocent. He was without sin. And so, even though we were guilty, God provided a solution for us. He sent Jesus who took the test for us and passed it in our place on our behalf. He came and lived the life we should have lived and died the death we deserved to die. 
taking our place on the cross where his body was broken and where his blood was shed. And he did that for us because he loves us and so that we could have life, eternal life and abundant life through Jesus Christ. And because he did all of that for us, that leads us to one other question. And that question is, how will I respond to Jesus? In light of all that he's done for me, he who died for me and who rose again, how will I respond? Will I reject him or will I accept him and confess him as Lord of my life and follow him today? Would you join me as we pray for just a moment? Our Heavenly Father, we have looked at some very important questions this morning in your word. And I ask that you would help us all to ask ourselves these questions on a regular basis. But we have to admit, we have to confess, we're all guilty of having rejected your authority. That's really what sin is. We've not been willing to do your will. We've pursued our glory instead of yours. And we've all broken your law. We are guilty but we thank you that in spite of that because you loved us you sent jesus the savior who came and lived a perfect life who went to the cross and traded his innocence for our guilt that he who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of god in him oh how we thank you You've given to us as believers the Lord's Supper as a way of reminding ourselves regularly of this fact. And so, Father, I pray that you would help us to do so in a manner that is worthy, that as we partake of the bread and the cup, that we would remember personally and very vividly the price that Jesus paid, the fact that he did so for us, and that this is our only hope. I pray for any who are here today who perhaps need this morning to confess Jesus Christ as Lord. They need to respond to this by receiving him and accepting him and saying, I will follow Jesus. God, I pray that this would be for them their day of salvation, that even now they would call upon Jesus as Savior and Lord of their lives. We ask that your spirit would move in our midst this morning and that you would knock on the doors of hearts and Father, that you would save those who are lost, that you would revive your people. And would you reveal to us right now and would you expose those unconfessed sins in our lives. Help us as we take these next few moments before we observe the Lord's Supper. Help us to examine ourselves as your word tells us that we should. And we'll give you the thanks and praise in Jesus' name.